Over the past month, we have been focused on a sermon series entitled Game Changers, and Jonathan and I, as we have shared with you, uh, have sought to make our way through the book of Genesis, uh, which is a difficult thing to do in the course of four weeks. There is a lot of narrative in the book of Genesis, and on each of these Sundays in which we have shared, I have thought, well, we could make a set of five sermons on each of these topics. Uh, Today is no exception. Uh, The Joseph narrative is one that has so many facets to it that we could really just about spend the year on it alone and thinking through all the details of what we read in this passage And yet we have this one Sunday, and so I will apply myself as best I can to remember the story with you. I know that you uh, remember it well, and we will consider it together this day. When we watch a football game, and come on, admit it, how many of you were watching a football game yesterday? Okay, true confessions right here. When we watch a football game, we... We pretty much, maybe I should speak for myself, we pretty much accept it just as it is. There uh, on the screen or in the stadium, wherever you are, you accept the rivalries as they are brought to that place. In fact, the event is on that day, who is coming up against who and what do they have to bring to the field? You're thinking about those teams. But it's interesting that there's a whole... Another story to the nature of what goes on, the field, and how it is connected with the story of its history, this great game that we call American football. It is a fascinating thing, and and yesterday as we were flipping some channels at our house and picking up on on certain games, um, particularly I was aware of one thing that was, was said, I don't know if you watched the University of Virginia game, um, God bless them, <laughs> they had a rough day against Oregon, but in the course of that, the beating that they took, they zeroed in on the campus of this Ivy League school and they said something that was incredible. They said, they said, here on this old field where they used to play the games, um, there is so much history and those who know the game, at least from the University of Virginia, claim that the forward pass started right here. And I thought the forward pass started right there. And I thought, I'm going to Google this a little later. (laughs) And so I did. I I looked it up, and, and sure enough, there is some evidence, probably mostly Virginia fans who are passing it around, that it may have started there, but if you're from North Carolina, you'll say it started there and uh, wherever you are. But it is this incredible game changer. You know, this, this gets down to the nature of the history of the game. You think about what's going on at any event, but listen, 
there have been some things that have evolved in the nature of the game called football that were absolutely critical in the development of what we watch every Saturday or every Monday. It is, it is just fascinating that there was football before the forward pass. Can you imagine that? I cannot imagine that. You and I, you and I come to understand, understand that, that at times in our reading through the scriptural stories of our history, that there are certain events that rise far above other events in terms of who we are, understanding who we are as God's people. This Joseph saga is such an event. You know it well. You perhaps learned it in Sunday school as a child at your teacher's knee and were fascinated with its telling. I can remember... I heard my father preach on it, heard Sunday school teachers talk about it, but the place at which it really became a part of me and really settled into my psyche was when I was in high school and I became familiar with the creative work of two fellows over in England who had matched themselves up for the purpose of writing Joseph and his Technicolor dream coat. You know this Broadway hit, Joseph and the amazing Technicolor dream coat. Andrew Lloyd Webber and Tim Rice, who also were known for their work with Jesus Christ Superstar, had this way of, of bringing to the stage this story and making the words of the story, the events of the story, take hold of you. I had uh, seen a couple of high school drama teams uh, share this story, but I had never seen a Broadway version. In fact, Sue and I didn't see the original Broadway version, but we had the chance to see an off-Broadway version in Macon a few years ago. And it was spectacular. The colors of the stage were just fascinating. Every color in the rainbow was represented there. And especially when you looked at Joseph's coat of many colors, it was no pastel thing. It was just vibrant. It was alive as he pranced out onto the stage and as he paraded and as he twirled around. And at the very end, this this wonderful celebration of the story of Joseph was interesting because he, he presented himself in his robe that was given to him by his father. And then at the end, he threw it open like this with, I thought it might be sequins at first, but it was too bright to be sequins. It was actually small mirrors that were sewn into the lining of that coat and he had every spotlight in the house on him and it was like this starburst effect over the room it was the most exciting thing to see I remember the Joseph story now 
It is a great, great story. Joseph, this favorite son of his father Jacob, who had not learned the lesson from his parents very well, that you get into dangerous territory when you favor one child over another. Jacob should have known this, shouldn't he? If you were listening to the sermon last week and heard about Jacob and Esau and the favoritism that was played by mother and dad in their lives, you would think that maybe this wouldn't happen the next generation down, but it seems it's, get, it's getting worse. Joseph, this favored child who comes back from the field having observed the shenanigans of his brother, reporting back to the father that things aren't going too well there with the keeping of the sheep. Now, I have a feeling that this wasn't the only time that Joseph had reported to his father. In fact, the close connection that they had was such that they thought the same way. And Joseph was sort of a representation of his father wherever he went. It was interesting that his brothers were tired of it. They wanted nothing else to do with this young upstart who was taking over their lives in ways that they had not imagined before his coming on the scene. They were tired of it. In fact, the situation rose to the point that they designed to kill this young fella. Fortunately, they were dissuaded by one or two of the brothers who said, hey, how about we sell him off? The story that came back to Jacob was horrendous. They actually killed a goat and soaked his coat in blood, bringing it back to their father and said, we weren't there. All we can tell you is that we found the coat. It's awful. It's awful. He must have been mangled by some terrible beast. We don't know where he is. We've only got his coat. And when the event fell on Jacob, he, of course, moved into such a time of grief that surely it lasted years. They had no idea the damage that they were doing. Now, they had sold Joseph off to the Ishmaelites. I would not know that had it not been for Weber and Rice. It was Ishmaelites to which he was sold. And they took him on this journey that he didn't choose. And as they made their way over to Egypt, Potiphar saw the potential and bought this young man and set him up as the caretaker of his home. Not only was he interested in how well Joseph was adapting to the world around him, but let me tell you, somebody else was paying attention to Joseph, and that was Potiphar's wife. When she made her advances on him and he resisted, she screamed bloody murder that he was the one that was coming on her. It was a terrible situation. Joseph, as you remember the story, was thrown into prison. And there he stayed for quite some time. His life becoming far less than he had marked it to be early on. You remember he had these grandiose ideas of who he was. When he was with his father in his father's home, 
He told his father and his brothers that he was having dreams. This young dreamer dreamed that they were in the field and that actually they were the sheaves of grain that were there and that there at the sheaves of grain that he was bowed down to by all the other sheaves of grain that were in the field. The brothers knew what this meant. This did not fly over their heads. He was absolutely ego-centered. Ubris was his middle name. He loved everything about himself. When he began to tell his father that he had had a dream about the stars above his head and that somehow the stars were representative of he and his brothers, the story went fine when he said, the stars bowed down to me. But then when he said, and then the sun and the moon bowed down to me, even Jacob told him, son, this is a little beyond the pale. <laughs> Joseph, Joseph was this dreamer, so centered on just who he was. Can't you imagine his coming to a different sense of that in the midst of his imprisonment? Wouldn't that break you down just a little bit? Can't you imagine that in his mind's eye at that time when he was put into prison, that he was believing that that is where he was going to stay the rest of his life. And that in the midst of talking to the other prisoners, he never imagined that the opportunities that he was given as a dream interpreter would have any effect on who he was and where he was going. But oh, it did. In talking to the butler and the baker or the pharaoh, there was this telling that was so true to form of what their dreams meant that the pharaoh asked when he had bad dreams, is there anybody that might interpret? And word came to him that, oh, there's this guy in prison that might be able to offer some assistance. When Joseph was brought to the Pharaoh, he gave all the assistance and more that Pharaoh could have ever imagined. He told the Pharaoh that the dream that he was having was absolutely a foresight into the future of what not only was going to happen with Egypt, but what was going to happen with the world and that there would be some years in which they would have the abundance like they had never seen before, but then they would enter a time of famine. It's an interesting scenario here. I keep on my desk a special little piece of metal. This is a cross of sorts. Some of you may say, that's no cross I've ever seen. And I have to admit to you, it doesn't have much Christian heritage to it. It's called an ankh. It is an Egyptian symbol. And it is a symbol that leads scholars and those that understand the hieroglyphics off of which this has been gleaned 
to understand that it means eternal life. I don't keep it on my desk as a reminder of what the Egyptians thought about eternal life. (laughs) That really is of very little importance to me. I keep it on my desk to remind me of the Joseph story and how at this point in the story that Joseph was actually probably more Egyptian than he was Hebrew, at least in his mind. In his mind, he had come to a place where he had given his life so completely to the culture in which he was embedded that he took on all the looks of an Egyptian. In fact, when his brothers showed up on the scene, when this famine began to do its damage, his brothers didn't even recognize him. How could that be? It was because he looked like a Pharaoh himself. His eyes were painted up. His hair was pulled back. Don't know what kind of headdress he might have had on, but Tutankhamun probably wasn't that far from what he looked like. He was an Egyptian, and they couldn't see anything else but. It's interesting how God works. Interesting how God works, because the game changer in this story is so powerful. Some people miss it, though. They get so fascinated with the storyline that they begin to forget the nature of what the story really hangs on. Let me tell you, at the very foundation of this story is the fact that Joseph, when he saw his brothers, and when he began to understand that God had begun to shape their lives in creative and useful ways, and to humble them by the the great grief that they had caused their father when he saw that they had come to their senses and to the goodness of God, that he himself was not about to take revenge on what God was doing. The foundation of the Joseph story, this game changer event, is that he forgave his brothers. It was so, it was so unbelievable. Do you know the story, how it goes? That they received his forgiveness, but then by the end of the book, they're coming back, and they're acting humble again. And he says, come on here. Don't you remember? I told you, I forgave you. It's real. And it shapes everything. I tell you, that's at the foundation. It is a game-changer event. It is the forward path. It is the forward path moment of the telling of the story of Genesis. What powerful things we think of when we try to remember Scripture. I dare say that There's one passage that everybody here remembers, John 3, 16. You know the one I'm talking about? You know it? Okay, I'm going to let you tell me what it is, okay? I'll start you off, but y'all speak John 3, 16 to me. For God...
Ah, what a powerful passage of Scripture that is. But you know the one that I think that we ought to focus on today is John chapter 3, verse 17. For God sent not his Son into the world to condemn the world, but that through him the world might be what? Saved. Saved. Isn't this the story of Jesus? Have we so easily forgotten that from beginning to end, the story of our salvation is this Lord who looks at us and who forgives us and calls us to be a people of forgiveness. Jesus began his ministry looking at his disciples and saying, you've heard that it said, love your friends, you know, and your neighbors. I'm telling you, love your enemies. Now, that's incredible. (coughs) How many times should we forgive? Well, you've heard it say seven times, but I'm giving you a little uppance on that. How's seven times 70? And most of all, of course, when Jesus was hung on the cross, (coughs) when his very lifeblood was dripping from him, In the ebb of his life, his mortal life, he spoke words that go beyond our comprehension. Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they're doing. Jesus' life is given to us as a living out of the very nature of who God is and what He is about. He is a God of forgiveness. And lest we be so egotistical to think that that forgiveness only is something that He sends to us, He is constantly calling us to examine our lives in order that in looking at the relationships that we have with others, that we would do the forgiving that is so in need for them as well. Now, there is an incredible thing that happens with this. You see, you've, you've probably heard coaches say in your past, in those days as the coach instructed the team before the big game, there is no I in team. Have you heard a coach say that before? There is no I in team. Why do they say that? Because they don't want you to think so individually. Now, there were, there were some great games yesterday, and there were, some, there were some stars. Bless Gurley's heart for running like he did yesterday for Georgia. <laughs> it, uh, it was incredible, wasn't it? It was incredible. But if you were to go and tap him on the shoulder, he's heard this enough himself, I know. If you were to ask him, um, are you the most important person on the team? He, he would shake that off and he would say, we are a team. We're, we're not about who's the most important one. We are about being a team. Now, I may be reading into that but because some people, some of these guys really like to play it up. But stay with me here. Isn't isn't this where we are as a church? Isn't this what we're seeking to do? 
Isn't this who we are? That we are receiving the forgiveness in order to be bound together. You see, this is one of the things that our new life groups that we're so focusing on and encouraging people to be a part of uh, offers to us is it, it binds us not only with God to be able to ask these questions about forgiveness and to, to give forgiveness to others, it links us with each other. You and I are called to be linked to each other as the team that God would offer into the world. I tell you, friends, this, this, is, this is a game changer. The whole idea, the whole idea of how powerful forgiveness is. It's an absolute game changer for all of us. Can you take it in? Can you pass it on? God bless us all. As we come to the end of our worship, I, I want to open this altar for those of you who would like to come and kneel here. Methodists have gotten so scared of coming to the altar. How did that ever happen, Tommy? How did that ever happen? I, I have no idea how we got This is the first time Tommy has ever not had something to say. <laughs> How does this happen that we somehow have lost this point of connection with this place of, of confession here? Confession of our sins, confession of the sins of the world around us, and the receiving of God's grace. I want to open this altar uh, for you today and to just say, be honest with yourself, be honest with God. Isn't there somebody that you need to forgive? Is there somebody else that needs to forgive you? I mean, come work it out. Make life real. Don't just come into this place and go thinking to yourself, um, that was a nice service. Make life real. Get connected here with God and with the team with whom you're serving. It's an important thing. Let's stand as we share this last hymn. And this altar is open for you to come and offer your heart to God. Number 700.